Today we're beginning a study uh, for the next 10 weeks leading up to Easter in the book of Psalms. And the Psalms, they're songs that are from the heart and for the heart. Rankin Wilborn, a pastor whom I quote often, says that prayer, the Psalms, are prayers that are given to us by God for God. He says, when you don't know how or what to pray, you can always go to the Psalms. Because the Psalms speak, most of them are songs, they're poetry, and they speak to the emotions of our heart. So when you're angry, when you're hurt, when you're sad, when you're lonely, when you're afraid, when you're ashamed, or even when you're glad and joyful, you can go to the Psalms and find words for your emotions. And when it feels like nobody else in the world understands what you're feeling in your heart, the Psalms do. And sometimes, even when you don't fully understand the emotions that are going on in your heart and in your soul, the Psalms will help you understand them yourself. And as you understand yourself, you begin to better know and experience God. See, so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at all these various emotions that come up in the Psalms. And one of the things we see is that God created us as emotional beings. He created us to feel and that's a good thing. And so all these emotions, uh, there's, not, they're, they're, there's nothing wrong with them in their essence. But often what we do with our emotions can harm others, can harm ourselves. Or sometimes if we submit our emotions to the lordship of Jesus, then they can actually draw us to be more like him and form us into more of the person that he's called us to be. I'm going to be sipping on a lot of water today if you can hear what's going on in my throat. But today we begin with the emotion of anger. And many of you know this, you felt this. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated, we say. Why can't I just have a bad day without it being such a big deal? How many times have I told you not to do that? Or, oh, I guess you never make mistakes. Why, why do you make me talk to you like this? This is who I am. I just speak my mind. I'm not going to be fake. You hear that one in Brooklyn a lot. See, anger takes many forms. Grumbling. Grumbling is a form of anger when we're just constantly cynical about things and just grumble, grumble, grumble. Suppression is a form of anger. We often mislabel our anger as something else as a way to justify it. I'm not angry. I'm just tired. I'm just stressed. I'm just frustrated. Sometimes anger manifests itself in active aggression. We lash out, sometimes passive aggression. I see this a lot. You know, it used to be that the phrase, with all due respect, was like the, the, the passive aggressive thing. It used to be, with all due respect, and then you just felt free to say whatever you wanted after that. Um, now it's the emoji. It's the winking emoji. How often, how many times do you get a passive aggressive text message with a smiley face emoji on it, with a wink at the end, as if you can say something mean and harmful, but if you put a yellow face winking its eyes, then that somehow doesn't make it anger. (laughs) Sometimes our anger manifests itself. We distance ourselves from the people we love, or we try to control people and things around us, or sometimes anger manifests itself in violence, and that's never a good thing. Anger manifests itself in blame shifting. When we struggle with anger, we often just assume everybody around us is an idiot and our anger is their problem. If you wouldn't do this, then I wouldn't act this way. Your anger is always a source of what everybody else is making you do. You're not taking responsibility for it yourself. Cynicism, sarcasm are forms of anger. Even depression 
is a form of anger. That's anger, anger that's turned inward on yourself. You become angry at yourself for whatever reason. And in our psalm today, Psalm 109, we see King David. And he's very angry. In fact, he's so angry that you're not going to believe what he says. Look at what he says in Psalm 109. Be silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for, lo- for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David says, uh, someone has angered me and I'm bringing it to God in prayer. And now listen to his prayer. Listen to what he prays. <laughs> Appoint a wicked man against him, my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer, even his prayers, be counted as sin. May his days be few and another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the inquiry of his fathers be remembered before, may the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. We'll stop there because we may not have the heart to go on just yet. But David's taking it to another level. I don't know if you heard what he said, but he essentially, he has an enemy that has hurt him in some way. And he says, God, I want you to take his job from him. Make him unemployed. Make an orphan out of his children. Just go ahead and kill him, God. Make his wife a widow. And then let creditors take everything from his family after he's dead. Let his children beg in the street like sea urchins. And hey, God, while you're at it, why don't you take down his elderly mom and dad too? And you're like, you're reading this and you're like, what? Like, what in, like, what's this doing in the Bible? Like, what is this doing? And you're like, King David said this? Like, man after God's own heart, you say? Like, King David, man after God's own heart? He's, he's angry. And then I said earlier that the Psalms are things that we're supposed to pray. And you're like, am I supposed to pray this? Like, about my enemies? Like, I mean, I, like, I'm mad, but come on, I'm not that mad. And as we look at this text, the first thing I want you to see before we get too deep into it is first I want you to let it comfort you. And you say, well, how can it do that? I want it to comfort you because I want you to see that even King David, a man after God's own heart, got angry. And he got so angry sometimes that just those type of words spewed out. And we've all been there, maybe not to that degree or in that we've, man- we've said it in those words But we've all felt anger and such strong uh, emotion that we can relate to David. And it's good to know that if you struggle with anger, you're not alone. Even King David. But if you want to control your anger, which we all should want to. We we should all want to submit our anger to Jesus. We've got to first understand it. And the first thing we have to understand about anger is that anger, first and foremost, is a form of love. You say, well, how is that? It's interesting, if you do a survey of the entire Bible and what it says about anger, what you'll find, you'll actually see that God actually speaks highly of anger, as if it's a virtue or something. Jesus was often angry. 
Jesus was angry at death, it says, when his friend Lazarus died. Jesus was always angry at religious hypocrisy and those that took advantage of the, of the poor. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Jesus looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart when he was looking at the religious leaders who were upset that he had healed someone on a holy day. Anger is even presented throughout the Old Testament as the characteristic of the heart of God. Exodus 34, 6, God himself introduces himself as, I am the Lord your God, slow to anger. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. And so there's a sense in which we're like we're supposed to worship this about God. He, there, he's, he, he's a God of anger. But then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you even just look at your brother with anger, you're guilty of murder in your heart. The Apostle Paul says, put away all malice and anger. And so you're like, well, what is it? Is anger a virtue or is it a sin? What you find all throughout the scriptures is that the Bible is not anti-anger, nor is the Bible pro-unrestrained anger. The Bible, you can sum up the Bible's view of anger in this way. The Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, but do not sin. So you see, there's such a thing as righteous anger. There's such a thing as good anger, God-honoring anger. And there's such a thing as sinful anger. And maybe that confuses you. But I want you to think about it. In order for love to exist, there has to also be anger. You cannot have love without also having anger. Becky Pippert, a counselor, says, Think of how we feel when we see someone whom we love being ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond to it with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Pippert continues, she says, If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful person, can feel this much pain and anger over someone else's condition, how much more a perfect God who made them? See, when my children are threatened, I get angry. If my daughter comes home from school and she tells me that she's been bullied, I'm angry. If my son, who has cerebral palsy, gets um, looked over for playdates, because nobody, because they don't know what to do with him. I get angry because I love my children. My heart breaks for them. And you know when cancers start attacking the body of someone whom you love, you get angry at the cancer. When you see systemic racism in our nation continue to rob people of color of the same opportunities as their peers, you should get angry because we should love justice. I don't know about you, but when I hear that 650,000 children are aborted every year, but only 100,000 families offer to foster or adopt children in need, I get angry. Because I love justice in this way. Matthew Henry says, this is a good way for us to understand anger, righteous anger. He says, if we are to be angry and not sin, that means we must be angry at nothing but sin. But often we get angry at things far more trivial. See, when God looks at us and he sees the cancer of our sin and the sin and the evil of of others all around us destroying our lives, he gets angry because he loves us. God gets angry when he sees something destroying your life. You see, anger is not always a bad thing because anger is rooted in love. But more often than not, in our lives, our anger gets distorted either in we get angry about the wrong things or we manifest our anger in really hurtful ways. 
And then that is when it becomes sin and it becomes something that we must place under the lordship of Jesus and let him begin to change our hearts. So why do we get angry? I would say that we get angry because of distorted loves. See, when something we love is threatened, that's when we get angry. That's where anger comes from. When something that we love gets threatened, that's when we get angry. That's what it means to be anger. Ang- but you see, anger is just the tip of the iceberg. See, the glacier is all the things beneath the surface. And what is below the surface is actually the real issue. Your issue is not anger. It's something else. And when that thing gets attacked, then anger manifests itself. So whenever you get angry, you've got to ask yourself, what am I trying to defend? And when you come up with the answer to that question, you'll have an answer to what your heart truly loves. And often we find that we love trivial, trivial things. And when you start looking below the surface of a lot of your anger, what you'll find, you'll find that what you love most deeply are the things that you defend most fiercely. So when you get angry, you ask yourself, why am I angry? What you'll often find is it's not justice that you love. (laughs) It's not the well-being of others that you love. It's your own comfort. It's your own reputation. It's your own self. It's your own love of security and control that you love. And when those things get threatened, you become enraged and you act out. Brad Hambrick, who is a a counselor who's written on this subject, uh, he says, when conflict arises, we have a tendency to see and hear first that which we fear the most. And so he, he uses, he's from the South, and he uses an example of when you're out in the country. He says, when I'm out in the country, he said, if I see a dark, crooked stick lying in the grass, he said, I freak out. He said, because it is a snake until it proves otherwise. And so that only the people who are not from the city laugh at that. The rest of you are like, I'm, what? Like, and if we love our reputation, if we, and conflict arises, we will hear what we fear the most. And so what we'll fear, when, when, when conflict arises, what we'll hear first is I'm being disrespected. If we love our reputation, because we fear being disrespected. And we go, I'm being disrespected, and we act out. Or if the R train gets delayed again, <laughs> what you feel is, and you love your reputation, you love your, I'm punctual, I'm professional. And what you feel is, this train and all these people on it, and whoever it is that got sick at, at Barclays or whatever that's causing this whole thing, they are, impu- they are like getting in my way. I'm late, I'm embarrassed, this is bad. They have threatened my punctuality, therefore they have threatened my reputation, therefore they have threatened what I love the most, which is myself. And I become angry. And when we, have to, when we begin to have these feelings and fears and threats, we begin to act in certain ways, and that's what anger is. And so just a personal example in my own life, just to be slightly vulnerable, um, I love cleanliness. And I love organization. I love everything to be in their place. I like things in order. So if you come into my little office, at our office space, I've got like a closet. We call it an office, but in New York, it's an office. It's very nice. Um, but I have all my books cataloged perfectly. Alphabetical order, Dewey Decimal System, no joke. I mean, it's, I've got it all. And I know, like, I, lo- I clean my desk three, four times a day. I'm a clean guy. I'm organized. And I love for my apartment to be clean, too. But there's a problem. Actually, three of them. <laughs> my children, Right? Six, four, and two, or one. Six, four, and one. And I mean, I, my love for a clean house is threatened all the time 
by three kids who just want to eat Cheerios and step on them in the carpet and do everything else that they want to do. They want to play with every toy in the house all at one time. And so I come home from work sometimes and the house isn't as tidy as I want it to be. And I begin to grumble. I get in a bad mood. I get irritable. Sometimes I'll distance myself from my family. I see some of you like nudging your husbands. Um, but I get irritable and I'll, I'll distance myself from my family. I become quiet or I say uh, passive aggressive things to my wife or sarcastic things to my wife. And sometimes on my worst days, I even raise my voice at my children. How many times have I told you to pick that up after I step on a G.I. Joe or whatever it is? That's sinful anger. Because one, it's, it stems from the fact that in my worst moments, I often love my own comfort and my own preferences more than my own feelings, more than the feelings of my own family. And often I see the mess because what I fear is being disrespected. I, I see the mess as a sign of disrespect. My kids don't respect me. They don't respect my wife. Why, why does she not clean this up? I mean, she's been working all day too. But they're disrespecting me. I see it. I take it personal and I begin to act out, whether through grumbling, whether through passive aggressiveness, whether through sarcasm, or whether through flat out just being angry with my children. And in these moments, I'm willing to act in ways that emotionally hurt my family, because, not because of any injustice that's been caused against them. It's, it's righteous when I yell at my one-year-old when she reaches for the stove because there's something that's threatening her. But when she smushes like yogurt in the carpet, that's a trivial thing. And that's my problem, not hers. And in those moments, I'm willing to emotionally hurt them because they've threatened my love for a clean apartment or my perceived sense of respect. That's sinful anger. And I'm sure you can fill in the blanks of whatever it looks like for you. But I want you to look at David's anger. Why was he angry? In verse 16, it says, David prays to God. He says, for my enemy did not remember to show kindness. But he pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, so let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing others, so let blessings be far from him. David, there's some justice in David's anger. David's angry because his enemy has been unjust to the people that David is serving. His enemy has caused harm to the poor and the needy and the downcast. His, excuse me, I'm so sorry. His enemy has cursed others. In many ways, David's anger is a righteous anger. David loved justice and he loved the people in his kingdom. And when their, when their well-being was threatened, he became angry. So there's a righteous anger there. And David Pallison, and maybe this is helpful for you, just to address, assess if your anger is righteous or if it's unrighteous, if it's sinful. David Pallison, who's a counselor, gives us seven questions to address, assess our anger or whether or not our anger is righteous or sinful. One, do you get angry about the right things? Do you express your anger in the right way? How long does your anger last? How controlled is your anger? What motivates your anger? Is your anger primed and ready to go? What is the effect of your anger? Does it leave people feeling hurt? Does it leave people feeling abused? Or does it leave, is it constructive? See, the question we've got to wrestle with in our anger is why? Why are we angry? Because that will reveal what you love, and what you may find is that your loves are distorted. You don't love God and others first. You love yourself. You love your own comforts. You love your own desires. And when all this is revealed to you, when that's happened, you've diagnosed the source of your anger, and then you can begin the process of healing. 
So what is the healing? What does it look like to be healed of our anger? And in order to begin on the path of healing with anger, we have to reflect. And that's what we've just been talking about is reflect. I've tried to show you up to this point that we can reflect on why and how we get angry and how our anger manifests itself. And the reflection and the diagnosis stage, that's the hardest part because that's the time where you've got to be honest with yourself. Why am I getting angry? What's causing my anger? It requires you to admit that you're angry in the first place. It requires you to lay down the whole, you know, I'm just tired or it's just a season or there's just a lot going on at work or if you would just listen to me. You have to lay all that aside and simply admit I'm angry. There's anger in my heart, and that's hard. And it requires that you diagnose the source of your anger and your bitterness. And it's painful because when you do that, you realize that it's not everybody else's fault. It's your own. (laughs) But once that, that hard and painful work is done, then you can begin actively seeking healing for your anger. And one of the first steps in healing is that you've got to pray your anger and trust in God's justice. One of the ways we often describe anger is through metaphors, right? I mean, sometimes our anger, we use metaphors to describe it. And the metaphor most often used for anger is that of steam or pressure. <laughs> you know, we, I've, I've hit my boiling point. Or I just bottled it up for so long and it finally just, I, I got to have a release. Or all this stress has been building up. Think of the cartoons you used to watch as a kid. What, how did they communicate that a character was angry? They would, their face would get blood red and out of the ears. The problem with these metaphors is that they're extremely unhelpful in helping us deal with our anger because they, in fact, they actually make our anger worse because if anger really is just pressure built up, then we don't have any control over it. It's uncontrollable. And if that's the case, then I'm not responsible for the way I act. It built up, it built up, and then it just unloaded. I tried to bottle it up, but there's so much pressure and it just exploded and we're no longer responsible for our own anger. If we use that metaphor, but if you read through the Psalms, what you'll find is that David, particularly when he's angry, he rarely lets it build. He brings it to God in prayer. And in this particular Psalm 109, it's a little disturbing because of the content of David's prayer. God kill this man and make his children suffer. Um, These are called imprecatory psalms uh, where people, where the psalmist, the psalmers will pray for the death of their enemies. And there's a few more throughout the scriptures. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about them. Like they make me uncomfortable. But here's what I want you to keep in mind about David. David was the king of Israel. That means that he had the power to execute this man. He had the power to send creditors after this man. All the things that David asked God to do to this man, he could have done himself. David was angry, yes, but David did not allow his anger to lead him into sin. And while his words were severe, those were words prayed to God, begging God to enact justice. Those weren't words directed to another person in the heat of the moment. And many of you, those of you who maybe have been abused, you know what it's like to pray words like David. You know what it's like to have thoughts of justice being, being enacted in such powerful ways. And part of praying your anger sometimes, whether it's anger at someone who's wronged you or whether it's anger at something trivial, is that when you take it to God, you're trusting that he is good and that he judges justly and that he will bring justice and he will take up the cause of the oppressed and the broken, even when it's you. Also, when you pray your anger to God, it forces you to wait on his timing, which sometimes protects you, from, which often protects you from blowing up in the moment. 
You know, often, you know, secular counselors might say, just count to 10 when you're angry. What are they saying? They're saying, just take, take some time. Well, when we pray, we're putting time between our feeling of anger and the manifestation of our anger. And we're not only taking time, but we're putting God in that, in that waiting space. And sometimes that waiting space actually reveals to you just how so silly the source of your anger is. Have you ever had to apologize to somebody for blowing up and you're like, that was so stupid. Like, I got angry over something so trivial. Time helps us assess triviality, and it helps us trust in God's timing that he will bring justice and that we don't have to bring it into our own hands. Often our anger is us trying to be vigilantes. We try to go out and we say, you know what, this person crossed me, I'm going after him. But the scriptures say we entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Listen, this doesn't mean that you don't address others when it's necessary. Often conflict needs to be addressed. Anger, uh, your anger sometimes, you need to let other people know it. But often, we often let people know it by blowing up. And that's not what, anger is meant to cause us to assess how we feel. And then we bring it to God in prayer. And then we assess how we can best approach the subject, approach the conflict in helpful ways. And even when there's confrontation, that confrontation should always be preceded by prayer because that will protect you from unleashing your anger in ways that are sinful and unhelpful. So we pray our anger. And then finally, the second thing we must do after we've reflected and diagnosed our anger and we've prayed it, and then we turn to Jesus with your anger. Repentance. You give it to him. And when I say repentance, some of you had the wrong thing in mind. Many of you think repentance, especially after you've sinned or you've blown up or whatever, you think repentance, it's not a matter of eloquence or a level of emotion. Some of you think when you've sinned or when you've messed up, you've got to have some really eloquent prayer to God. You've got to have some four or five step plan that you've got to give to him of how you're going to make it better. But repenting is not a matter of eloquence or level of emotion. Repentance involves a level of awareness that your sin is first and foremost an abdication of God and replacing him with something else. You've removed God from the first position in your life and you've replaced him with something else. So what you're repenting of is not anger. You're repenting of loving something else more than God. You're, repent you're not repenting of bad behavior. You're repenting of a, of a misplaced love. See, God doesn't have a problem with decibel levels. Did you know this? God doesn't even have a problem with the vocabulary you use when you're angry. What God is upset over in your anger is that you, 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 have, you have replaced him with something else. You, your love for God has been replaced for love of self or love for something else. See, so repentance, when I say repentance... And turning to Jesus with our anger. I don't mean some big fancy remorse or a long prayer. What it begins with is placing God back in the position in which he belongs. Placing him in the position of Lord. You see, we know something today that King David didn't know when he wrote these words. See, David had heard stories of God's justice. And he had heard the Lord proclaim that he was a just God. But today we know just how God judges justly. And he does it through Jesus. Earlier I said that anger is a characteristic of God, and some of you may have even winced at the thought of that. My God is not angry. I don't want an angry God. I want a loving God. But how can you have a loving God if he doesn't get angry at the things that destroy you? You cannot have a loving God unless that same God is angered by the things that threaten to destroy those he loves. 
And for God to love us means that he must also get angry at the things that hurt us. And what, and what hurts us? What threatens us? Sin. Sin is anything, Romans 3.20, it's anything that separates us from the glory of God. That can be our own sin, our pursuit of things that lead us away from God, whether it's a pursuit of unrighteous anger or whether it's pursuit of lust or whether it's pursuit of greed or whether it's pursuit of whatever it is, those things pull us away from the life that God has designed for us to live or sometimes the sin that threatens us is the sin of others, injustice all around us. And God is angry at all sin. He's angry at the sins that you commit that pull you further from him. And he is so angry at the sins that have been committed against you. And on the cross, God asked the question. The cross is Jesus asking the question, how can I destroy the thing that is destroying the people I love without destroying them? How can I destroy sin without destroying sinners? Romans 5, how much more shall we be saved by God's wrath? Jesus rescued us from his own anger. Jesus took our sin upon himself. Jesus, God, God is so angry at sin because it threatens to destroy us. And he goes, how can I destroy it without destroying those whom I love? So he takes it upon himself. He goes to the cross and he receives all his anger and his wrath towards sin onto himself. And three days later, he rises from the dead and says, I have defeated your sin. I have defeated your sin and by life in me, you can have eternal life in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more injustice and no more sin and nothing to get angry about. Because God himself will be with us and perfect peace and justice will reign. See, sometimes we try to excuse our anger by saying things like, I'm only human. I'm only human. I'm a redhead. <laughs> That's one. I'm a redhead. We're hot tempered. I'm Italian. I hear that one all the time. I'm only human, we say, as if that can excuse our anger. But do you realize that when you make the statement, I'm only human, what you're saying is, I need the gospel. Because to be human is to be a sinner. And God came to save sinners. And so when you say, well, I'm only human, it's not, it's not a way to excuse your sin. It's a way to say, I cannot handle this on my own. My desires are so weak. I never love the things that I should love the most. I, I often place trivial things above God and others. And I love those things. I love myself so much that I often get so wrapped up in my own anger. And it manifests itself in all these harmful ways. I'm a human and I can't deal with this myself. I'm only human. God, can you come and can you restore me? And can you put an end and put to death my anger? I can't atone for my sins on my own. I'm helpless against my sin without Jesus. And when you've diagnosed your anger, when you've prayed your anger, you must then finally turn it over to Jesus because you are helpless without him to overcome it. 
And what it means to turn your anger over to Jesus is that you are striving to see him as more and greater and more beautiful than whatever it is that you love the most. Whether it's your comfort, whether it's your pleasure, whether it's your money, whether it's your security, whatever the, whether it's your reputation, whatever it is. When you hand that over to Jesus, you say, God, I'm striving to love you more than anything. And when you do love God above all else, and I know that many of you have had moments where you know that's been true about you. In those moments where you love God above all else, the things you'll get angry with are the things that threaten your relationship with him. The things you get angry with will be sin and injustice. Be angry, but do not sin. If we're to be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Because sin is the thing that separates us from God, but God has bridged that gap. And when we realize this, we can begin to fight against our anger with the same vigor that we used to fight against lesser loves for so long. Let's pray.